Hostage diplomacy is a term you'll frequently see in the media. It strikes me as a misleading term. What we're really talking about, dictators kidnapping and torturing innocent foreign civilians. In some cases, the leaders of free countries pay ransom to get them back. In some cases, the dictators also demand the release of convicted criminals who have been or can be of use to them. In some cases, both simultaneously. I'm going to remind you, because we must never forget, that the Islamic Republic of Iran is the world's leading sponsor of terrorism. That in 1979, in violation of the most fundamental international laws, its agents seized the American embassy in Tehran and held 66 American citizens hostage, 52 of them, for 444 days. The regime in Tehran threatens Israelis with genocide and is providing weapons to Vladimir Putin so he can continue slaughtering Ukrainians for refusing to submit to him for the crime, in his eyes, of wanting to remain free and independent. The Biden administration has now reportedly approved the release to Tehran of several Iranian criminals along with $6 billion in frozen funds. In exchange, five U.S. citizens would be released. And that's almost certainly just part of a broader deal being kept secret from the American people and from Congress in clear violation of American law. Billions of additional dollars appear to be involved in this deal, which will not stop Tehran's nuclear weapons development program or even seriously delay it. And because you get more of what you reward, expect the hostage taking to continue. Joining us to discuss these topics... Gazelle Sharmad, whose father, Jamshid, or Jimmy Sharmad, a German citizen, was taken prisoner by Iranian agents in Dubai in 2020. She has been tirelessly campaigning for his release ever since and urging the U.S. and Europe to take a tougher line with Iran's ruling mullahs. Shi Wei Wang is a Chinese-born American scholar who was imprisoned in Iran from 2016 to 2019 after being falsely accused of espionage. I'm proud to say Shi Wei is a member of FDD's National Security Network. And Ben and Ben Talablu is a senior fellow at FDD where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad we have you with us, too, here on Foreign Odyssey. So thanks to all of you for being here. Yeah, you want to say something? Thank Gazelle? you. I just wanted to a comment for your introduction on my dad. Yeah. Um, you said he's a German citizen. He's also a U.S. national. And if we don't add that on, then it doesn't make sense that I'm in D.C. right now not being here. Very good. Well, I know he lived here for many years. I don't, yeah, two decades Two now. decades he lived here yes. now. And I think I saw, let me just get that, that he would have probably gotten his citizenship yeah. if he hadn't been kidnapped. In other words, he was on the road. He was a national, American national, what do you call it, a green card holder? He, sh- he should be actually a citizen by now because his mother was a U.S. citizen. So oh. two decades here as a son of a U.S. citizen, you right. should be a citizen right now. If he wasn't terrorized in 2009, everything that everything was halted, immigration process was halted and everything, he would be a citizen. He mm. is, in essence, an American already. So everything else is just bureaucracy that we're right. talking about. Right. Okay. Well, I'm glad you clarified that. And we will also get back to that. You know, to start off, Shiwei, I People should know your story, but if they don't, let's just remind them what happened to you. I mean, basically, you're at Princeton, you're a scholar, you're working on your doctorate, you were studying, I think, what the uh, Iranian history of the 19th century, 18th century, uh, should not have been a lot of landmines to studying, to studying 18th century Iranian history, right? Late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, Turkmens. Turkmens. Northern, yeah. uh, Northern Iran, uh, Russell-Iran frontier. Um, yeah, 
and you're at Princeton and you think, okay, there's a lot of uh, documentary uh, documents I should be looking at. They're in Iran. You probably had learned pretty good Farsi, at least to read it and all that. And the university said, yeah, that's a great idea. You should go uh, study in uh, study in Iran. No problem. Uh, well, the, actually, uh, <laughs> it's not like that. <laughs> so the, the, the broader context was the conclusion of the JCPOA in late 2015. It was not very clear to me at the time that the Princeton University was very involved in this JCPOA pro-engagement policy. Well, tell me, how was Princeton involved in this negotiation? Well, um, I'm not exactly sure where to start, but Princeton is very involved in progress, left-wing progressive uh, politics. It's like uh, there's a revolving door um, for Obama-Biden administration officials to uh, leave the administration, go into academia, and then going back to the administration. Uh, and Princeton is a very important hub for that, right? And by the way, most recent example is Robert Malley, who's the point man for right. this administration on Iran. Guess what? He has been suspended from his position because something to do with classified material that he mishandled. We don't know exactly. But in the midst of this, Princeton says, oh, that's fine. Come back and you'll teach some courses right, right. here. So, so, so Princeton is very involved in pushing this pro-engagement policy, right? And, you, uh, and there you have um, Iranian-American Princeton University alumni who donated uh, over $10 million uh, to Princeton to establish this uh, Iranian study center, reestablish links, build a bridge, engage with Iran. Uh, so um, it was not uh, very clear to me that there's uh, that, that level of consideration um, uh, uh, an entanglement there at the time. No Iran hawks, as you might say, at, at Princeton. Nobody who says, "Well, I disagree. I think we have to be very cautious about this dictatorship." That that's not that that, that point of view yeah. is not heard. It turned out that there are people who are more critical to Iran, uh-huh. but uh, unfortunately, I was not very close to them. Okay, but as far as the Iranian Study Center and whole pro-Iran sentiment is concerned. Of course, in the in late 2015, uh, when the JCPOA was concluded, the university had this interest to push engagement, right? So the then director of the Iranian Studies Center proudly told me that we want to be the first American institution to send students to Iran. We're really glad that you received invitation to, because I applied, right, to study at the, the Dehuda Institute. So I think, you know, after the JCPOA, there will be a bright period of reconciliation. So you should go and we will fund you to go. Under that encouragement, I felt, okay, Princeton's major university, you have a lot of political connections, very well funded. You know people here in DC and there in, in Tehran. So I should be safe. I would have followed academic advice. And then to be frank, I was center-left at the time, and I thought, okay, maybe there's a kernel of truth that the, the Obama administration's rhetoric about Iran, okay, we have been wrong in many ways in dealing with Iran, and then this is a monumental step uh, to improve relations. And again, I was not politically very active. I never said anything against the Iranian regime. I've never written anything. So I thought, well, just a researcher, you go there, study the language, and then do the archival work, which was well-coordinated with the Iranian authorities what can happen. Right. Right. And what's the chance uh, for a student uh, doing language study and PhD dissertation archival research on a topic of uh, early 20th century obscure area of Iran? How can that be a problem? 
but precisely when I went there, first couple of months, no problem at all. Um, they treated you well. They, they were glad to see well. you. Yeah. Uh, so the problem came up on the day, a couple hours before I was due to return to the United States. So I received a call from someone claimed to be uh, Iranian police asking me to bring my passport and computer and um, go to a local diplomatic police station for questioning. So that's a couple hours before my flight. So wow. I went there and then someone came from outside in plain clothes and then they took me to a room and then they asked me to surrender my computer and passport. And then the first question they asked me is, are you a Chinese citizen? Look, you know, looking at my American passport, flipping through it, seeing a Chinese visa on my American passport. And then the first question being, are you a Chinese citizen? How is that relevant? Right. Obviously, I honestly told them I'm not Chinese citizen. I think that's the moment later on they decided, okay, we can arrest this person. Yeah. So you think if, if, if you said, yeah, I'm a dual citizen, I have Chinese citizenship and American citizen, they would have been more cautious because they no, have more fear of the Chinese. Would, than No, they, probably I wouldn't be able to, 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 to uh, really make the case because I have a Chinese visa yeah. uh, on my American passport. Uh-huh. So no, but I, but, but, but hypothetically, had had that visa not been there, and you said dual citizen, do you think they would have feared the People's Republic of China more than the United States? I would of America? say they they fear China, but I I, I would say that um, um, being more if, cautious right, not to disrespect China, right? Because if China can present a strong case, then I mean, what's the point of causing trouble in that uh, relation, right? So unfortunately, they identified me as a solid American. A situation that they can exploit. And then they took my computer and passport and told me, well, you're not going home today. You can go back to your residence and wait while we investigate you. So 18 days later, they arrested me. Right. So during this 18 day, I reported to Princeton about what's going on, uh, reported to the Swiss embassy. American interest right, uh, American, section, yeah. Uh, the American interest section about what's going on. And then the Swiss made a disclaimer, we're only messengers, right? So whatever you tell us, we report to the State Department. At the time, Princeton told me, don't make any noise. We don't think you'll be arrested. They just do a routine check on you. Once they determine you have done nothing wrong, they will release you. Presumably, at advice from the State Department, the Swiss told me we would not advise uh, that you escalate this case uh, because that will make the Iranians mm. think you're important. So... I missed the opportunity in retrospect to escalate this case, to bring it to the media, and failed to get the State Department to seriously pay attention to what was going on. Right. So, and 18 days later, the Iranians said, oh, you know, we have investigated you and you've done nothing wrong, so we're taking you to the airport. But instead of taking me to the airport, they took me to Evin Prison and threw me They into, lied to you, in other words. Yeah, way. they lied to me. They asked me to call my wife. They asked me to call the Swiss embassy, telling them I was on my way to the airport. But instead of taking me to the airport, they took me to the Evin prison, threw me into solitary confinement for 19 days without any possibility to call anyone, to contact anyone, right? And then a month later, they forced me into confession and they said, okay, so you're American, so you deserve this. We want a deal with the Obama administration to repatriate Iranian prisoners and Iranian frozen assets. You're American, that's your problem. Had you been a Chinese, none of this would have happened. You have to confess to being an American spy so we can have a case. If you don't confess, there will never be a case. You'll rot in the prison and you will never be able to set your foot on American soil. You will never be able to see your wife and child again. Right. So up to you. One day, sooner or later, you will confess. To whatever we want you to confess to. You'll write there. I mean, they were kind of right, right? So Yeah, yeah, well, you had no choice. Yeah, so that's how I was forced into uh, confessing. And then 
In fact, they only wanted one sentence in English and Farsi. I'm a spy for the United States. That was it. No detail was asked. Just one sentence. Did they give you a lawyer, even though it, who, who would even say, "Look, you don't have any choice. I can't really defend you." Oh, I never had a. So even, no. the um, uh, one day before I was arrested, uh, I hired a lawyer. Right in uh, uh, in Iran. In yeah. Iran, <laughs> uh, the okay, lawyer yeah. was a francophone. Couldn't really speak English. I didn't speak French. <laughs> you could imagine how we communicated. But that really didn't matter. He couldn't help you, right? That really didn't matter. So, in the court sessions, my lawyer was never allowed to speak. He was merely allowed to give a final statement. That was it. What did he say with the final statement? Did he say anything? Did he say you were innocent? Did he yeah. say he did? He just yeah, said he yeah. did. Yeah, he, he, he's innocent. He's just a researcher. He's a student. Uh, he mm. didn't do uh, the, the the heinous act of espionage or you know causing any harm to the regime. So please be lenient, right? Yeah. Um, but of course, that made no difference. I was given ten years of sentence, just like everybody else. Right, and ju- and I just want to be absolutely clear on this point: when they spoke to you, it was obvious to you from what they were saying they knew you had done nothing wrong. They were being quite candid in saying, "Hey, you're valuable because we can get things we want out of the Americans by trading you. That's what you are. You're a chip. You're on the table." That's that, that was pretty much it. A, a very very candid. Very, very frank, very explicit, and then they said, "Okay, you know, we don't want to torture you, beat you up, and all that. Solitary confinement would do all that, and you know, beating you up is physically exhausting. So, <laughs> you know, we don't want to do that. And then you need to help yourself and just confess, right? And then give us whatever we want. We'll leave you alone, and you wait for the deal." Right? And then they allowed me to call my wife, and I told my wife over the phone, "Please." Contact Michelle Obama、yeah. because Michelle Obama is a Princeton alumna. Please contact、uh, John Kerry and Obama. Right. I've been forced into confession, and they wanted a deal. And my wife did exactly that. What I asked her to do. Princeton was very dismissive. You know, this couldn't be the case. He's just a student. This must be some low-level functionary making a mistake. And then the State Department will say, "We just don't take whatever the Iranians say seriously. We don't think they mean it." Right, so、uh, they would not say they're taking me hostage or not, but they would say we will not take it that seriously. So I was arrested in August 2016, forced into confession early September 2016, right? And my wife immediately reported to the State Department after I was forced into confession. Throughout the Obama administration until the early 2017, the Obama administration never never told my wife the nature about my detention, right? They never admitted the possibility that I was taken hostage as a political bargaining chip, and then they did nothing based on what I know, right? And and my wife was never able to meet a senior official during the rest of Obama time to discuss about my case. And Princeton, we have all these. Pro-engagement people, a lot of them born in Iran, I, I believe,、yeah. and they have good connections back in Tehran. They have people they can call on the phone.、Oh, yeah. They did nothing I,、so、either. I told my wife, look, the former Iranian ambassador to Germany, Jose Musavian, is at Princeton. You need to ask Princeton to get this guy involved. He has all the connections with Rouhani, the president of Iran, and Zarif, the foreign minister. And Princeton need to leverage that relation, get him engaged. So. My wife told Princeton about that, and Princeton said, "No, you know, Musavian doesn't want to get involved because you know he has interest in Iran. It's dangerous for him. He doesn't want to be involved. So forget about that, right?" 
I said, what about Professor Mudarisi? He's a mujtahid, Ayatollah, right? He goes back to Iran regularly. Princeton professor at Near Eastern Studies, Rohullah Khomeini's personal secretary, early 1980s, highly connected in Iran. And I said, oh, no, they don't want to get involved, so you shouldn't think about that. They don't right? want to get involved. Remarkable. Right. Can you imagine, right. can you imagine, so if you were a Princeton student, you would think, oh, these people are so connected, so well-respected, both in Iran and in the West. You know, God forbid anything happens to me, they will jump into helping resolve the situation, right? None of that happened. And Princeton did not push them to help me. And by the way, if I'm the... Uh president of Princeton, or if I'm in the administration of Princeton, I would, it seems to me I would think, what a stain on the university. I'm employing all these people, and here we have a student, and we've encouraged him to go over there, and now he's in solitary confinement, and we're doing nothing about it as a university? Did the president of the university ever say, who was the president at that time? Ice Gruber, President Ice Gruber, and he's still the president of Princeton. And then their thinking is, you know, situations like this, and in fact, quote by Princeton's representative in Washington, D.C., who has said, you know, situations like this will just work out themselves over time. Never mind, I was sitting in a dungeon. Literally, I was in Iranian jail. Already at the time, a year or two into my detention, and Princeton was still holding the view that this will somehow work out itself. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that, but... but, but it's certainly my impression that this advice that you get from, from from the U.S. government, from European governments, from the universities, just be quiet, it'll all work out, it's disingenuous. Either they don't know or don't want to know that that actually is not helpful. But we'll come we'll come back to that maybe another bit. Gazelle, maybe this is a good time for you to talk a little bit about what happened to your father. He goes, well, he didn't even mean to be in Dubai. He was on his way from the U.S. to India, if I recall correctly, and he ended up stopping in Dubai temporarily over to catch a flight, right? Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, during the pandemic. So he had a flight layover. There were no direct, direct flights during the pandemic. He was going from Germany, actually, at that time to Mumbai. His flight stopped in Dubai. Um, he called my mother from his hotel room in Dubai. The hotel room was in the airport. In the he airport. never left the airport. And my mom freaked out. And the reason um, she freaked out is because Dubai is not a safe place for people who are critical of the Islamic regime. I mean, you just heard what happened to Shue, who is not at all political, not yeah. at all even yeah. once criticized the regime. Yeah. And they take away all of your rights. They treat you as a criminal. They force you to confessions. Imagine what they do to people who were critical, who were outspoken. And that happened to my dad actually uh, 16 years ago or I don't know how long it is, 2009, 2009, um, they sent an assassin to Los Angeles where we live to murder my dad, to assassinate my dad. That's an agent of the Islamic regime on U.S. soil plotting an assassination attempt, which thankfully was foiled. But since that how time... How was it foiled? Well, the hitman that they hired, he he got cold feet. They were also surveilling huh. the agent that he came. was an American, or he was an it? American with Iranian um, okay. background yeah. uh, here. Um, the agent of the Islamic regime, his name was um, uh, Mohammad Reza Sadernia. He was sent from the regime to surveil my dad and also another TV host um, at that time, and to take out both. Hmm. So he was hiring hitmen to do that. Um, that the hitman was forced by the regime agent, which means hmm. uh, his 
family in Iran was right. threatened. Um, he was threatened himself because he had some drug-related charges or something like that. And he was supposed to buy a gun and shoot my father. And when they he, he got around it, didn't get a gun, um, the regime agent forced him to get a van and like make it look like an accident, you know, like hit my father on the on the side of the road. And we would have never known. We would have thought like it's an accident, something that happened. And we wouldn't we right. wouldn't even know that this was a plot by the regime if that happened. But he pulled, thankfully, into a gas station, called the police over there. That's when we were called. My family were called. They told us your dad is in danger. Where is he? Come to the police station. That's how we even found out that this was happening. Let me go a little bit further back, actually. Um, 2003, my dad comes from Germany, where we all grew up, to the U.S., uh, we have a big uh, Iranian community in Los Angeles. They all have like satellite TV stations, radio stations, all very critical, outspoken against the regime. And my dad is by trade a software engineer. So he offered one of the one of the TV stations to create a website, uh, like mm -hmm. an archive, to put their shows as an archive. And um, the, the the TV show was very critical of the Islamic regime. So as soon as my dad did that, the regime started attacking the website with cyber attacks. And after a week, they exposed the server, which was the server of my dad's company. So immediately the regime knew who this website was associated with, my dad, his name, his company, his address, everything. And that's when the attacks against my dad started. So threats to take down the website, threats against his life, uh, our family, all of those things. And when he didn't do that, uh, he even went a step further. He opened that website up for the people of Iran. Activists from inside of Iran could now log in and report what's going on really in, in Iran uncensored. Um, he created a radio station where he would talk about everything that was on the website. So um, he was taking it further and further. And so the regime thought he's not responding to threats. We have to do something. That's when they sent a re regime agent to take you out to hijack whatever movement you're on, to hijack the website, to take to take you out. And um, knowing all of this backstory, when my dad called us on his business trip, flight layover in Dubai, we all freaked out. What are you doing in Dubai? People uh, go there for a vacation. Normal people, it's like a vacation spot sure. over there. It's the Vegas of the Middle East, uh, apparently. For us, it's like a, it's, it's like a death trap, right? Oh. <sighs> people get assassinated. People get kidnapped. And that's what happened to my dad over there. The uh, the, att the the attempted the, the assassin, first of all, in Los Angeles, um, the agent of the government. Was he arrested? Was anything, yes. anything happened to him? Yeah, he was arrested. He pleaded guilty. Um, he went to jail in Los Angeles for one year. And he was released uh, on what we believe was a prisoner swap with Iran, oh, where uh, oh. another um, uh, American hostage was released when mm. he went back. Uh, they said he went back to see his ill father and never returned, I of see. course. And in the UAE I'm, and in Dubai, I'm, did the government of UAE, of Dubai, they did not, they were doing, taking no steps to protect him? They were not uh, standing up? To, I mean, this, the idea that you were going to have a kidnapping by a foreign government on your territory that seems to me humiliating. I mean, that's a compromise of your sovereignty. You would think they would say, you know, you can't do that here. But they just turned the blind eye. Is that what happened? You you lose baggage in Dubai. There is a police report. You lose a person. There is nothing. Wow. Absolutely nothing. Dubai, the UAE didn't do anything. But even our both both of our governments, the German government and the U.S. government, did they investigate? Did they hold them accountable? Did they say anything? Did you see anything in the media? Like, 
asking them what is happening to people, to our citizen going to this country. Like, like, is this how you treat tourists over there? Or like, <laughs> like yeah. what is this? Nobody did anything. The same thing with Oman. We saw, and when my dad was in Dubai and we all freaked out, my dad opened up his Google um, location sharing device right. to show us, like, you can always see me. I'm yeah. going to be okay. I'm just waiting for a flight. Yeah, and at the airport. Could, at the airport could, hotel. We could, we could see him. <sighs> But for the next two days, he wouldn't respond to any messages from my mom anymore. Do you have any idea how they grabbed him? I mean, did they open his hotel room? Did they get him how? when he went down to the restaurant? You have no idea. They I just have no idea how, how they got him. Because I mean, you got to grab. You, I've seen your pictures. Of your father. He's a big guy. <laughs> he he's is. a strong guy. They'd have to. It would take. He wouldn't just walk, come, or go along with them unless they had well, a gun in his back or something. He is a big guy. Um, he's also sixty-eight, and he has Parkinson's. Um, so, well, you can. Uh, <laughs> imagine how weakened his body is but uh -huh. we don't know how it went through like sometimes um, when you are involved with activists and my dad was involved for 16 years with activists sometimes uh, they might be exposed as regime agents sometimes they lure you some somewhere they do something so we're assuming there was some foul play from people who were reaching out from Iran right. they might have been a re regime agents maybe somebody wanted to see him in the regime lobby uh, in the regime in the hotel lobby or something like that we don't know all we saw is that from the moment that he said i'm in the hotel room um after that phone call he would not respond to us But on Google Maps, you could see him moving. Right. And not towards Mumbai, which is towards right. the north, towards the south, to the border of Oman. And then crossing the border of Oman, which was closed during the pandemic, uh, through it's on the road. He's taking the road. Huh. So somehow crossing that border, either either on the back of a truck or something, or the, or the Omanis and the UAE knew and were involved in it, then getting to the coast of Oman, And that's when the tracker stops. Huh. And my mom receives a message from my dad's phone saying, I'm okay, I'm going to call you. To which she thought, okay, they, they, he's somehow uh -huh. in transit, uh -huh. like probably like, doesn't have reception, like whatever it is. Like, like trying to you yeah. know, calm yourself down, everything's going to be okay. He just messaged me. And the very next day, we're woken up to the news that the Islamic regime released on their website, a video of my dad where you see him like blindfolded, swollen face, forced to confessions. And you're like, they kidnapped him. We don't know how it happened. The, the, the mechanics, like everything, like what, what brought him there. But we know where he is now. And we don't know if he's alive or not because knowing like, Uh, terrorist regimes like the Hezbollah, they, they do uh, forced confessions and then they be behead the person. So mm. at that moment, for mm. I was 99% sure my dad was dead. Like that was the last time we will ever see him and that was his last video and he's dead. So for one and a half month, there was radio silence. We didn't know if he was alive or not. Mm. And then we got the first phone call from Iran. And the phone call was from him, from my dad, and saying okay, that he's alive, alive. But I'm in, I'm, I'm in captivity. I mean, he is in captivity. He could not tell us where he is up him. until today. Nobody knows where he is. So this is an ongoing kidnapping. I always say that when people say like he's imprisoned in Iran, I'm asking which prison because I don't know right. which prison he is still kidnapped. His, right. He's still like forced. This is still forced disappearance because you can't locate a prison. You can't find him. You can't see him. For three years, nobody has seen my dad except for the people who kidnapped him. So this is an ongoing kidnapping case, a hostage case. And we don't know. And um, you're living in the U.S. and he's 
almost an American citizen. He's moving in that direction. He's also got German citizenship. So obviously you go to the authorities and say, hey, I need your help. And the authorities say to you. Well, <laughs> the authorities um, said two different things. Uh, we spoke on the very first day. We called everybody. That means the State Department, the FBI, the local police, the German embassy and in Los Angeles. We called Interpol and Interpol told me, like, um, we don't talk to private people. We <laughs> government no, stop calling. We didn't know. You don't know you what know, to do. Not. Like, there is no handbook to tell like, what to do when your loved one gets kidnapped. So we just reached out to everyone and uh, the State Department said, OK, and then blocked us up and said, well, he's not a U.S. citizen. It's not our responsibility. And we're like, wait a second. This man is an American, he's a patriot, he's a freedom fighter, living here, was attacked on U.S. soil, he's kidnapped, taken there. We're four generations of U.S. citizens and you're telling us because of some bureaucratic bullshit, you can't help us right now. So that's how they blocked us off. Oof. Thankfully, there is a law, which is the Levinson law, uh, based on Bob Levinson, who was also a hostage murdered by the Islamic regime. I think so. We've never seen. We have no idea. Uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. We, we don't know where he is. Um that says you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to be saved by the U.S. government. So the U.S. government has a responsibility to also U.S. nationals like my dad. Also residents, anybody with significant ties to the U.S. should be protected. So even the law here is being broken by the State Department. But when your loved one is kidnapped, you don't have time to argue with governments. You go to the government that, that, that speaks with you. So the Germans spoke with us. They told us, yes, your dad is a citizen and we will do everything in our power, everything to help him. And hearing that, you think, okay, that's great. Oh, like yeah. there are people, like we, we've been taken care of. Um, just like Shui said, uh, they immediately said, don't talk to the press. It will endanger him. And um, that was a little too late because the moment my dad was kidnapped, I was already on Twitter. I was on social media. I was everywhere because the regime made it public. They put a video up of my dad being kidnapped. So why wouldn't I make it public? You know, like that didn't make sense right. to me that I'm told to be quiet. No. And I was talking to all of the other hostage families at that time that were reaching out to me, like Richard uh, Radcliffe from uh, the UK yeah. was one of the first reaching out Whose to me. Whose wife said, had, had been held. Exactly. Yeah. And said, like, don't wait. I waited. Don't wait. Right. Immediately don't wait. go to the press. So. That and so what did the German so the German government says don't hey we're on the case we're going to but did they actually do anything Did you see them do anything I didn't see them do anything trade between Germany and Iran is at extremely high levels am I, am I, am I right Benham? it's one of the, their big trading parties. I mean that's one thing they could do they could say oh this threatens all trade between our two countries if you hold Thank a you. citizen that I mean very simple that's one thing you do we're going to I'm sorry we cannot have trade as usual you can say you know what your ambassador, if he can't talk to us about this, we're not talking to him about anything. Maybe he has to come back. Our ambassador, maybe we need to recall him for consultations. This is serious. All, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done. One point I want, that I want to stress, and Ben, I want you to address this because it affects you too, is it's my clear impression that to the authorities of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the fact that you have an American passport, a German passport, any passport, the fact that you don't hold Iranian citizenship, they don't care. They think, you know what, your name sounds Iranian to us. You know, your grandparents may have been Iranian. You must still obey us and you can still be punished by us. And we don't think the, the country you live in protects its citizens if there are like you. By the way, I should say she 
I think that the People's Republic of China takes the same attitude, from what I can see, to the Chinese di diaspora anywhere in the world. Your, your name is Chinese, then you obey Beijing. Well, uh, slightly different. Uh, yes, I think uh, uh, that's about right. But uh, uh, so Iran does not recognize uh, foreign citizenship. You are Iranian, you're always Iranian. You are Iranian forever, right? You, you can't go back to Iran on a foreign passport. In China, in that regard, is uh, different. Once you become foreign, uh, you're a foreigner uh, by law. You can't have a Chinese passport. But because you're Chinese, you're of Chinese ancestry, they still think they have, you know, the, 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 uh, the CCP would still think they have some sort of a legitimacy, like a, a legitimate uh, claim to you. Uh, to you. Got yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and I th uh, only when they need you. Right. Only when they, when they need yeah, you. Yeah, only when they need you or they want to do something uh, w it, with you. And then they say you're a Chinese descent. So you you should, ne you know, you can never cut tie with uh, with your motherland. Yes. Right. If you want to do business there, you're a foreigner. You're, you're right. So if you want to do anything else, for in my case, mm -hmm. the Chinese government did not get involved because they made a, a public announcement. Mr. Wang is not a Chinese citizen. He's American. This is a case between the United States and Iran. We have nothing to do with it. I mean, right. You know, you, you, you would think that the United States, that Germany would say, you know, we're major powers in the world. We are important countries. You simply can't do this to our citizens as a matter of principle, as a matter of prestige, as a matter of, you know, you have to understand that we're not going to allow this to happen. But that, but it, that, Ben, maybe you should talk about this a little. That has not been their response. The response has been one of appeasement. The response has been one of weak weakness. And the problem with that is, if you're weak and if you appease, it doesn't work. I mean, we, again, we, as I pointed out, first hostage taking 1979, and uh, eventually those hostages were given up. And I think because at a certain point, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was worried that Reagan was going to do something serious. Up until that point, his the phrase he used, and it's been used ever since, is the Americans can't do a damn thing. Am I translating that correctly yeah, from the Farsi? That, that line, I remember seeing that line in so many videos, America cannot do a damn thing. Uh, that was one of the few times that Khomeini translators actually were figuratively and literally honest to the exact words and the exact meaning behind that. Uh, with the 1979 hostage crisis, it was slightly different. This is this is kind of forgotten in the, with immense respect, the politics of the of of the past and the, the kind of politics uh, surrounding the Carter administration. Uh, a lot of the Iranians had a different view of Jimmy Carter than the Americans of Jimmy Carter. You think of Jimmy Carter in America, you think weakness, you 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 think vacillation, you think Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, you think the botched Panama Canal stuff, you think the you know permissiveness with the Iranian revolution, all these things. But the Iranians uh, inside Iran, the people who would become the Islamic Republic, saw Jimmy Carter as the next in a long line of American presidents who were quote unquote stalwart allies of the Shah. So yes, they were afraid of Reagan, but also more importantly, what they wanted to do was to spite Jimmy Carter, to, to prove that line uh, that Khomeini said 444 days before the release of those Americans, that America cannot do a damn thing, to prove to the world that whether you're Germany, America, China, Russia, unless you're willing to go to the 
nth degree, and uh, this was mentioned by some colleagues in other think tanks and other examples of uh, what other countries do when their hostages are taken, whether it's civilian, military, dual national, foreign citizen, whatever, unless you're willing to go to that route and, and uh, fight fire with fire, if you will, we have more leverage than you. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, you know the playing field has to always be unbalanced, but it's a recognition of the state of play, which is the kind of state, the kind of actor, the kind of government that is going to be taking hostages and using human beings as political pawns in their game of strategic competition against another state. Uh, the normal kind of tools of statecraft will have limited effect. You know, making sure that the story is public uh, is actually more about who we are versus who they are. And it's more about, there's a saying in Persian, the strength of the heart. It's to give the actual prisoner, the hostage, the strength of the heart. Some of these things, in my view, pressure can be helpful, but these are people who thrive with some of this stuff as well. We have to get more creative than just the media spotlight. The problem, and you've both said this in spades in both your cases, is that not even the media spotlight was granted to you. And the official position of a private institution and the official position of major governments, major Western governments, America and Germany, was to not even not grant you that position, but it was to try to incentivize you to not even bring that issue into the spotlight. So it was not even permissive of the context to think creatively, other than paying a massive ransom, which is the option the Islamic Republic and any other hostage taker always wants you to be left with, which is to say, well, first, I want to do no harm. Well, first, I want to make sure my loved ones are okay. So just let me do this one time. And in essence, when they prove that, you will beget the next round and the next round and the next round of the hostage taking. And when Jimmy Carter froze those assets and then had to unfreeze those assets to get the hostages home, it solidified in the minds of the people who became Iran's revolutionary elite that this policy pays dividends. And that's precisely why 44 years later, they continue to use human beings as political pawns. Yeah, and I just want to add to that. So uh, my captors repeatedly said, rest assured, don't feel bad. You are not the first American uh, we have arrested and you will not be the last one. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so that sentence really stuck in my mind. I mean, to this day, they're taking uh, foreigners, primarily Westerners, Americans, Europeans, Australians, you name it, as hostages this way. Regime officials have also been, you know, quite vocal. You know, you have the, you know, one of the many vice presidents in Iran, Iran, there's several vice presidents, Mohsen Rezai, he was a former commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, served in the Raisi cabinet in one of these deputy vice president positions. I think about one or two years ago, he even had a statement on the record saying that, yeah, this this pays economic dividends, that you know, hostage taking is lucrative, that he saw it as a way to resolve, along with sanctions busting and all these other things, as a way to resolve Iran's macroeconomic problems. Uh, so this is this is really how they how they do statecraft. Uh, you know, it's, it's not an aberration. It's not one rogue guy and one rogue uh, one rogue security organization. This is part and parcel of the Islamic Republic. Yeah, this is a failure to systemic, right? Is, is going to be get the next round, like you said. And well, and that segues to where we are right now because we have reports that the U.S. and Iran are about to carry out what they call a prisoner swap deal. I hate that phrase because, I mean, <laughs> they're not, it, it suggests moral equivalence. 
between the prisoners as opposed to a, a, a hostage for ransom. That's what it really is. But it sounds nicer to say prisoner swap deal. And it was we think it was released, it was reached last month and it would see five American citizens who have been unjustly imprisoned by Iran released in exchange for at least $6 billion. That's more than a billion per hostage. That's more than ever before. So the Inflation Reduction Act didn't do anything about that. Um, and with the money to come from frozen funds held by South Korea um, and also the release of five Iranians who I think are have been justly Im- imprisoned here in the, in the U.S., uh, by the way, did you did you have any opportunity, Gazelle, to say, okay, if you're going to spend six billion dollars to get our hostages, can you at least stick my father into that group? That's exactly why I came to DC um, two weeks ago, and why I'm back here. Um, in general, uh, well, first two things in general, um, we have an ex hostage here, and we have a daughter of a hostage. So in general, we are for the measures to free hostages. We're not against freeing hostages, okay? We have problems with how it's done, um, the whole mechanism of it. And um, if they're still going with the wrong mechanism, then at least, for the very least, make sure all of the hostages, especially those with death sentences, right. are involved. That is, the, that is the bare minimum for this amount of money that you just mentioned. We could not just free, uh, free all of the U.S. hostages. We could free all of the hostages worldwide that are in Iran. There are Europeans, Canadians, Australians. Yeah, that there's are there a right Swedish now. diplomat we might, Ex- yeah. Exactly. And they're continuing to do that. And so... That's what we came here to to ask the State Department. And have you had an audience? Have you been able to to make the case? Exactly. After campaigning for a week in front of the State Department, after three years of being on their backs with my my lawyer here, um, they agreed to meet me. They agreed to meet with me and... I got zero answers to my question. So all I heard for two hours was diplomatic language, how to go around and round and not answer the question. First of all, how do you cherry pick your hostages? What is it based yeah. on? Like, is it, is it based on like how long they've been there? Because two of the hostages were just arrested that are part of this deal. Is it based on urgency? Because none of the other hostages have a death sentence. This one does. Is it based on like how they were arrested or, or taken hostage? Because my dad was kidnapped. He didn't yeah. even go there. There's not yeah. even like any risk taken. Yeah. The uniqueest was, case. Yes. Yeah. It's transnational repression. It's national security yeah. and hostage taking. And hostage taking. None of my questions were answered of how they pick these cases. It, it seems like, and you see that over and over again, that it is cases that are more convenient, that the hostage takers are more uh, lenient to, to give free, and uh, that are celebrities like Br- uh, Brittany Griner, for example, that are people who were um, not critic, not critics of the regime, that were maybe doing business over there or something like that. That seems to be the overall pattern that we're seeing. This is discrimination unlawful discrimination that puts people in harm's way and not just my dad who will be executed if he's left behind but it will also set a precedent to the islamic regime and to all the other terrorists out there you can go after dissidents and nothing will happen to you you can either try to assassinate them here on u.s soil if that fails kidnap them take them over there put them through sham trials torture them get forced confession and then assassinate them over there and nothing's going to happen and then there's even a, a follow-on, which is to say, God forbid they continue to do it, which almost in all certainty they're going to they continue will. to do it. Um, they're trying to use the fear generated uh, by mm-hmm. both of your cases, both of your stories, and in particular the transnational repression element 
uh, of it. Uh, you know, you both are very generous and gracious with your time. You're here at FDD now. FDD is a sanctioned institution by the government of the Islamic Republic. But uh, as I, you, your dad's case in particular was used uh, in mid to late 2020 against me and uh, my Iranian American colleagues, past and present, Said Ghazamijad and Ali Reza Nader. Uh, they basically did a bio in an IRGC-affiliated uh, media outlet of me and my colleagues talking about our crimes, testifying before Congress, supporting the freedom of, of the Iranian people, all these kinds of things. Uh, and in essence saying that which they did to you, uh, your dad, I should say, and Ruho Lazam, who was another Iranian-American you know, media personality, uh, Iranian media personality who was lured into the region and then kidnapped from Iraq, uh, I should say, uh, and he was executed we will do to you. So they, they said, you deserve the same kidnapping and revolutionary justice. You deserve the same kidnapping punishment uh, that was uh, given to these two. So they're trying to silence voices. They're trying to limit freedom within the U.S. and within Europe. You would think that would make the governments of the U.S. and Europe say, that's outrageous. Freedom is important to us. And a foreign government trying to limit, that is hostile and there will be serious repercussions in the economic realm, in the diplomatic realm, in in terms, in every way we can, but they're not. And, I'll, and I'll, let me also give you my theory. You, you're asking them, so how did you choose these particular hostages? And they're giving a diplomatic runaround. And my theory is, and I'd love to have somebody from the government tell me I'm wrong, is they didn't choose them. The yes. Iranians said, here's who we're giving you. And they said, well, we would like to have, no, no, you don't understand. Here's who we're giving you. You don't have a vote in this. You are going to take what we give you and you are going to give us what we want. And that's how it's going to be because we make the rules. You don't. That's my theory of the case. You agree, Benham? You follow this more closely. Dot, dot, dot. Because America <laughs> cannot do a damn thing. Because America cannot do a damn that's thing. That's what I fear as well. You know, I, I, I mean, look. There are three, by the way, there, there are, including uh, Ghazaleh's father, there are three people in a... Uh, uh, who meet the definition of a U.S. national under Levinson Act that Iran is holding in reserve. So it's not mm -hmm. just one, it's three. And then there's probably countless European and Western uh, hostages because we, to this day, don't have an accurate headcount because there are so many cases like, well, well, Kylie Moore Gilbert was hostage. She was held privately for a year. The story didn't make the media for a yes. year. The Swedish government employee, the, the, the diplomat, the EU diplomat from Sweden, uh, quite literally was hostage for 500 days. We didn't hear much about Sweden doing a lot of protesting against the government of the Islamic Republic. So we don't even have an accurate tally of those who remain. And we don't have an accurate tally of those who remain in jurisdictions that are friendly American partners like Sweden or Australia. They're, the Islamic Republic has so silenced these foreign ministries. Uh, it's insane. By the way, this, this six billion is almost certainly only a down payment Rich Goldberg, uh, who works for FTD, just did a piece in the New York Post, and he says he estimates. Benham, you tell me what you think. You probably agree because you guys saw that it's at least a fifty billion dollar protection racket that we're going to see here, not just the six billion dollar payment, because this is all. This is also about a wider deal being made that the American people are not being told about, that Congress is not being made aware of. I believe, and that's in, in violation of congressional law, where they're supposed to, Congress has a law in ARA, you can talk about that, that's meant to, Congress is meant to be, give its approval, they're not going to do it. And what it's going to do is it's, it's it is, well, why don't you talk, it's going to, they're going to continue to enrich uranium, but at least hold off on 
going beyond 60%, which is with which is very close to weapons grade. I guess throughout until the after the election's over. That's pro, that's a, that's a, that's a suspicion. Do I have it right? Is I, I mean I I do. Um, I'm inclined to very very strongly agree with everything <laughs> you just said there, Cliff. You know, listen. Let's let's unpack that. There's there's a lot of important threads. There's the hostage taking thread. There's the nuclear uh, component thread. Right. There's the congressional thread. There's the economic thread. There's so many different factors at play here. And, you know, the Islamic Republic continues to say, no, the nuclear part is totally separate from the hostage part. The U.S. government continues to say, no, the nuclear part is totally separate from the hostage part. I'm inclined to disagree. This really is a, a case of the Lady Doth protest too much. Uh, and let me let me tell you why. You know, Robert Malley, you know, the architect of the Biden administration's Iran policy, in my view, actually, probably this is my theory of his philosophy. So forgive me for a second for delving in there. Uh, I've never met the man, but just forgive me for a second, which is they do see a linkage between hostage diplomacy and nuclear diplomacy, for lack of a better word. And the reason they see that is because Iran from the get-go, when Biden came in, up the ante. Uh, in January, they began enriching again to 20% purity. This is considered highly enriched. In April 2021, uh, they began enriching to 60% purity and have not stopped enriching to 60% purity since. 60% is a hop, skip, and a jump to weapons-grade uranium, which is 90 plus percent. Earlier this year, Iran went to 83, 84% very briefly. Did not stockpile, but went up there. Small footnote, uh, in the end of World War II, when the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Japan, one plutonium, one uranium, the uranium one was enriched to below 90% and still worked. It was enriched to 80%. Mm. Again, the Islamic Republic had gone to 83, 84% a few months ago. So this cat is slowly walking out of the bag and no one is saying anything. So what the administration has been trying to do to prevent this cat from crawling out of the bag is to come up with a theory of the case to meet Iran's overwhelming demand for the past two years, which is to say, you need to not just give us the relief we want or deserve or believe we earned under the deal. You need to secure for us. You need to prove that you can do it and prevent someone else from undoing it just like Trump did. So this is where the hostage diplomacy, in my view, comes in, which is Iran keeps saying, give us a guarantee that the money will come. Give us a guarantee uh, that, that no one will undo this. Give us, give us proof that you can actually deliver on economic relief. And what you saw with the most recent hostage deal, the freeing of the six billion, and, and before that, the 10 billion from Iraq, you know, the frozen funds that Iran has in many jurisdictions around the world, is America kind of through a clever hand waving, waivers, general licenses from the Treasury Department, doesn't sign or agree to a new quote unquote new nuclear agreement, even though that's precisely what all of this is. They're simply making some legal and regulatory political adjustments uh, to permit Iran greater access to frozen funds abroad, which we have to remember, even the Obama administration agreed that these funds should be frozen because of Iran's uh, support for terrorism, its nuclear program, its missile program, its military program. These were, you know, tight restrictions on Iranian oil and revenue generation schemes Congress put in place from 2010 to 2013 that were unlocked by the JCPOA and refrozen by Trump. And the Biden administration's theory of the case is that you could still tempt Tehran not to go all the way to 90% so long as you pay them just enough. And the theory of the case is that Tehran will be provoked sometimes, so you don't do too many sanctions enforcement, you do occasional sanctions enforcement, and then you don't look too weak because then you get hit from the likes of FED and Shuya and Ghazali and everybody else. So you do, you do just enough to limp along. And there's a, there's a Persian word here, it literally translates to, uh, the, the word is kajdarmari, so it means 
literally, quite literally, it means sideways sick. What it just, but it literally, it figuratively means limping along, just to limp along to get to 2024, uh, to create the political conditions so that the Iranians feel that they can be content with what they have. They have the money. Their nuclear program is basically wherever they they want to be a turn screw, a key, a key a screwdriver away. And, uh, and I think the, the the administration has an interest to showcase to the American public they were able to put the Iranian nuclear advancement back into a box. There's no box. There's no box. And by the way, the, the other thing that's this is such a ridiculous debate I'm hearing on TV and in places that the that the administration Biden administration is saying, oh, this money, this it can only be used for humanitarian purposes. And then the regime is saying, said to Lester Holt on NBC, no, we'll use it for any purposes we want. And then the administration says, no, they really can't. Well, first of all, of course they can. And secondly, do does anybody know the concept of fungibility? It's like economics 101. So if you say to me, Cliff, I'm going to give you 100 bucks, but you can only use it to buy lunch. You can't use it to buy any more scotch. I know you. <laughs> I can say, no, that's okay. I promise I won't buy any scotch without $100. But now I've got an extra 100 bucks in my – I'm buying the scotch, man. And you, you, that's called fungibility. Everybody – does anybody not understand that at any level in the U.S. government? There, there's, there's two things. There's the fungibility argument, which they simply will not entertain because it will totally torpedo <laughs> <laughs> everything they said. But if you want to get legal, if you want to get macroeconomic, look, the reason these monies were, were, were frozen abroad – in the past, again, I want to reiterate, under the Obama administration, which got us the 2015 nuclear deal to begin with, is because we didn't trust what the regime would do with this money when it got access to it. <laughs> and already there were humanitarian provisions in many of these locked up accounts. Iran's complaint consistency with the provisions in place was that, oh, well, we want to buy a, a medicine that is not in South Korea, or we want to buy something that is not in Japan, or we want to buy it in a different jurisdiction, we can't move the money, and then so they would complain. This is, this is basically the regime continuing to use the Iranian population as a human shield for their other, other illicit uh, activities. And, and it gets worse. I mean, like going back, like it legitimizes the regime. Like the regime is not the government. The regime is somebody that took over right. this country. The money that is out there and frozen is the money of the Iranian people. Right. That is my money. That is your money. That's the money of people in Tehran, in the streets, in the, in the prisons. Who gave them permission to give that money to the oppressors, to the kidnappers? Like, this is the first thing that I would say. It doesn't matter if they're going to use it for humanitarian right. reasons or not. It's not their money to take in the first place. Right. And right. the funny thing is Iran's president, Raisi, is saying this. Oh, this is the Iranian nation's money, which is it's very funny because you've done some very interesting things with the Iranian nation's money. Uh, this country, which is so materially rich and rich in human resources, has massive brain drain, has massive economic problems. I wonder what you've done with $145 a barrel oil in the past under Ahmadinejad in 2010. I wonder what you've done with all the natural resources in Iran. So that, but that, that's just a long, long-standing critique. The other is in other areas where there were more permissive humanitarian uh, controls like Turkey, Iran had a massive gas for gold sanctions busting scheme there, 2012, 2013. And one of the ways that Iranians got around the U.S. sanctions in place was they abused the humanitarian provisions in the law, basically did things that are that you've seen a lot of illicit businesses everywhere, which is over invoicing. That's one problem that exists. And two, uh, basically pretending that that which they were importing was that which was declared. So the regime has even abused humanitarian locks. And that was in NATO ally Turkey. Imagine the controls in a country like Qatar, which 
has, let's just say, a very permissive jurisdiction for funding terror groups and has hosted the Taliban and is very permissive when it comes to funding uh, Hamas through these quote-unquote charities. Uh, so this is why the Islamic Republic is banking with Qatar. So at least two more subjects I want to get into. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. But it, you, Ghazal, you mentioned legitimizing the regime. So President Raisi is coming to New York and he's going to speak to the General Assembly and at the UN – He'll be his hand will be shaked and people will pat him on the back. People will pretend that he's a legitimate government, not a hostage taker, not a terrorist, all those things. By the way, he's also going to, I understand, have an interview at the Council on Foreign Relations. We have friends of the Council on Foreign Relations. I respect the organization. With respect, I think they're making a mistake giving him that kind of platform. I understand their argument, but if they are going to do that, will they at least say to him, by the way, you are holding hostages. Let me mention some of the names of them and t and talk about your kidnapping of them. Will they do that? Because I remember when Zarif was foreign minister and he came to, the, to New York and he got on various news shows and all kinds of respectable, respected journalists I know didn't. Didn't ask him this question. Didn't ask him the most obvious questions yes. that they should have asked him. And I hope this is not going to happen again. You have more than you need to do. But you might want to visit the Council on Foreign Relations and say, <laughs> hi, are you planning to ask these questions? Would you like me to write out some questions for you that will be useful from a news and research point of view, which is what you're doing? Because I'll be glad to, to be helpful to you because I think, that's a, I think it's dreadful if they treat him with respect and I think they'll treat him with more respect than they would – Oh, anyhow, you understand like, what I'm saying. I don't that's, know if you... that's several points that you brought up. Like, uh, f first of all, our president could have chosen not to give him a visa, right. just like based on the laws and the sanctions and everything that we have. Totally. Um, try to get a visa to a political prisoner that's injured. Practically, you can't do it. You can't do that. So, so that's that's point number one. When my dad was kidnapped in front of the eyes of the world, taken to Iran, held in solitary confinement for 1,000 days. His teeth were knocked out. He was tortured there. He was taken through sham trials. Do you know what the German government did? They invited the foreign minister of the Islamic regime to Germany to give a talk about the art of the nuclear deal. That's what they were doing. That's what they were confronting. But you would think like she would mention maybe somewhere there like you just kidnapped our citizen and you sentenced him to death. Like what, what is that? And, and, this is a pattern that we see. I mean, this 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 pattern of what what we just explained with Shui and with my dad and all of these hostages that we see for forty four years. When you see that mm. somebody is doing something wrong over and over and over again, I assume, and you guys are the experts on that, but I assume that this is not wrongdoing anymore. This is purposeful mm, action. Mm. So when you on purpose, like we can't be the only smart people who see that when you give hostage takers billions of dollars and not even release all of the hostages and increase the price, that this makes stuff worse. Like everybody who's behind, behind these mm. deals, they must see that too, right? So what is their incentive to do that? I don't believe that for 44 years, you repeat a mistake over and over again. I repeat one mistake and then the second time and third time and then I learn from it and then I try to change it. But if I don't change it, then maybe I'm getting something out of it. Maybe from this 50 billion or whatever you, the FTT now mentioned, the price goes higher and higher and higher the more we look into it. Maybe if just a fraction of that comes back from the Islamic regime, back to the people who are giving it out, right? 10% of it. How much is that? 500 million? 500 million can buy everybody at Princeton, can buy all of the academia, can buy 
political campaigns, can buy the media, can buy all of this stuff, all of these companies that are behind this, all of these lobby groups. So I believe after so many years when we see all of this misery in Iran, people dying there, right now we have the anniversary of the revolution, and you see that these, it doesn't matter which administration, it really doesn't matter which administration, which country, the Iran policy has not changed an inch in all of these years. Then I think there is some intention to it. Do you have a theory about why we don't learn? Uh, well, this this might be. I'm, I'm a fan of very elaborate theories, but this might be more <laughs> of the Jonathan Shanzer school, which is the Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is, in this case, the likeliest, uh, which is just you know my two cents on it. Which is, no, we might just be that dumb. We <laughs> we might just honestly. Uh, think that this is the path of least resistance. That's why they don't want a media fuss over it. That's why they don't want it to impede trade. If you're a European or Western state, that's not America that does have trade with Iran. This this is politics and philosophy, uh, both going downward on the, the moral side and on the strategic side. They, think they see the Islamic Republic as a rogue terror state. They have been accustomed to it. It's like the frog that's boiling in the pan. You keep turning it up slowly and slowly, slowly. It, the, the world has been living with four decades of the Islamic Republic sponsoring terrorism. The world has been living with four decades of the Islamic Republic, uh, you know, kidnapping, assassination, and taking hostages. And the problem is when you confront someone who's saying, oh, the world has been living with it, they're like, yeah, but we've been living with it and the sky didn't collapse, so why should we stop living with it? It's getting worse. You can see right now, yesterday, when this deal was like pushed forward, when the six billion like were moved over there, what happened yesterday in my dad's case? My dad was in another sham trial in Iran at the same time that the money was given to them. And who was next to my dad in the sham trial? The U.S. government. The U.S. government was served and charged by the Islamic regime. Didn't make it, yeah, I see it in, in your face. Didn't make it to our news here. No. It was all over Iranian news. But it gets stopped. It doesn't get picked up by they our were, media. They were they was indicting so, the U.S. government for misdeeds. For terrorism, for terrorism financing, right. for everything yeah, that my yeah. dad did. They're, 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 um, my dad told me about this, like in one of the earlier phone calls that I had when he was uh, taken to Iran, that at the end of all of these sham trials, there's going to be this final sham trial where Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, uh, Brian Hook, you name it, the, ho the whole former administration is going to be charged with the same things. Well, that they're and they're charged. threatening all those people, and a lot of these people, with death openly. And by the way, that's not part of the that. deal. Okay, don't threaten our people with death. So, so when, when they've threatened them, and now they take them to court and charge them with that, well, the person that they have there, my dad, is going to be executed. But the people that are not there are also going to be executed through assassination attempts. So what I'm trying to say, Bernam, is Maybe the frog was like burning this whole time, but now it's on fire. Yeah. They're coming over there. They're coming for our politicians. You just named it. The 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 diplomat from um, from uh, Belgium uh, from yeah. uh, Sweden. Sweden. He is part of Joseph Borrell's uh, external action service. He was working on the JCPOA. So it doesn't matter if you were against the regime, if you were a Republican, or if you were working with them. They take you hostage or they assassinate you. So it, it affects everybody. Yeah, and, and yesterday they announced, I think it was yesterday, they announced that two French citizens, uh, male and female, of non-Iranian descent um, are being charged. And they're in prison in Iran. Right. This is not stop. It works, so why would they so right. why and, stop? And, and they can do it they can humiliate every European and, country. Yeah, in and then today and the, and the today they said we uh, um, are sending two cases of uh, German citizens who uh, incited uh, the um, uh, protest abroad 
Um, it's actually three like citizens. It's one German citizen, one British citizen, and one U.S. citizen. So, so we're just freeing citizens right, so, for billions of dollars at the same day. This is at the same time, same time as the, 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 the you know the money is making their way towards Iran, and this is happening. Yes. So uh, the, I, this story that I, <laughs> yes. I'm pretty yeah. sure I read in um, a piece by Michael Rubin, who is our friend over at American Enterprise Institute, and he was looking at how. Other countries deal with this. You know what I'm saying. Okay, so tell me if I remember the story. In Lebanon, Hezbollah kidnapped four Russian diplomats. One of them, Hezbollah killed. The KGB responded to this, perhaps not quite so diplomatically, <laughs> as I understand it from Michael's piece. They castrated a Shiite leader's relative. They delivered the body parts, and then they killed the relative. And Hezbollah took that into consideration, and then freed its remaining captives, and have never seized another Russian. Now, I'm not saying that I can imagine <laughs> Secretary of State Blinken or, or National Security Advisor uh, Sullivan saying, "Oh yes, this is we'll follow this model." But you could get a little tougher than we've been, and that gets to the kinds of things we're talking about, which Goldberg mentioned some of them in his piece, and, it, and it's the last thing I want to talk about, though I'll give you everybody time if there's a point you want to make, and that is the things we should be doing. Uh, one is that, the, I mean, the Germans should have immediately said, I'm sorry, we are going to begin to cut back and eventually wipe out trade. We cannot do this. We cannot say, oh, but we're selling Mercedes in Tehran. So what the? No, you don't do that if you're a respectable government who cares about your citizens. You simply don't do that. Maybe Ben, just talk for a minute about ideas at FDD from you, from Mark Dubowitz, from Rich Goldberg, from other, of things that very simple that don't require cutting off body parts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, um, absolutely. <laughs> Listen, there's uh, there, there's tons of things that can and should be done. You know, at the bare minimum, you, politically, countries that have hostages uh, taken from them should not have diplomatic re representation, diplomatic relations with Iran. Whether it, it should not be about a tweet or a démarche, it should be at the very, 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 very least a, a downgrade or a, a full evacuation. And, and, you know, if the country insists and if the, the, all the hostages return, then ties could potentially be restored. But, you know, that would be something I would oppose. But nonetheless, you should not have diplomatic representation open there. That is actually more of a gift to Tehran. I know a lot of countries see it as, oh, this is not a gift. This is just a norm uh, we engage in with all the countries. No, it, it is a gift to Tehran because you are opening the door to legitimacy for this regime as it continues to not just use and abuse uh your own citizens against you, but to continue to mock you. So step number one is downgrade or fully cut off diplomatic ties uh, with, with, with Iran. Step number two is you have to go after both the supply and the demand side. Something has to be done. And I'm, and I'm an Iranian-American here, and I'm, I'm going to have to say it. Uh, we, the community needs to understand that travel to Iran comes yeah. at cost. It, it is it is politically very precocious to say it's politically problematic to say, um, but we're going to have to understand that there are two sides of this equation: supply and demand. And the, the U.S. cannot afford to be, or U.S. citizens of Iranian origin cannot afford to be furnishing one side of this equation and then expect someone else to furnish the other side. We have talked with lots of friends and colleagues about this for years now because, unfortunately, this hostage-taking thing has been going on for years. One thing that actually came up for people who were traveling at the tail end of COVID, and this was mentioned by 
you know, several think tankers, and, and we agreed to be a good idea, at least in principle, is to not just have a potential ban on the U.S. passport for travel to Iran, even if you're connecting in a different jurisdiction because there's no uh, direct flight to Iran, but also to uh, transfer the responsibility onto the private sector. Much like during COVID, you could buy a ticket, but then you still had to prove a negative test. Uh, you know, many have talked about uh, an airline not honoring a ticket, not through the payment side, but when you get to the ticket counter, if you have to show a passport or prove you're a citizen of a different mm. place, uh, that this that 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 this ticket is not going to be valid for you. Uh, there's all these different ways to enforce it, but to transfer the responsibility onto the private sector to not let you arrive. Yes, it creates tons of problems for families, but A, this stuff is much better than a blanket travel ban, and this stuff is is still would allow the kind of things to go visit families in other visit neighboring countries, which even then, to be fair, is not even safe, given the fact that uh, Razada, your dad, was, was, was taken uh, hostage in a country that the U.S. has a major Iran washer presence in, which is the UAE. But we're not going to open that can of worms. So step number one, downgrade or cut diplomatic ties. Step number two, affect the supply side. Step number three, don't reward bad behavior. No more mercantilism. All the countries that have this kind of uh, you know, hostage problem with Iran should not be engaging in any kind of trade with Iran, period. Uh, and then step number four, we need a global campaign to understand who has been taken hostage, who isn't taken hostage, how many people are still there. Countries refuse to share information about this because they continue to be intimidated by Iran. Move this issue into the light. There needs to be a global campaign, maybe a special mechanism at the UN about hostage taking and have every country bring forward the names of people that are hostage there. Uh, and then finally, to understand on the security side, the intel and security coordination side, how at risk is America? How at risk is Australia? How at risk is the UK uh, from this practice being employed by Iran's newfound great power patrons who may want to take a page from Iran's playbook and charge over $1 billion per head of a US du dual citizen or foreign citizen who is in China, who is in Russia? Well, it, it, I mean, what right now, we, it is it is happening. There are hostages being held in China, and there are hostages being held in Russia. Not least the Wall Street Journal correspondent, uh, and who is an accredited correspondent, and he's being held for no reason. He was doing his job, and he had accreditation accreditation from the government uh, of, of of Russia. Go ahead. There's one more thing I absolutely forgot, which I, I mentioned on a, on, a, on a panel earlier. Uh, there are actually ways to go after the families that don't involve cutting off body parts and not this sophisticated legal mechanism that we discussed, which is uh, Foreign uh, Appropriations Act for the State Department. It's renewed in 2019, 2021. There's expected versions that continue to come up, allow the U.S. to do kind of blanket visa bans of regime officials and their families, uh, a regime that continues to engage in hostage taking of Western citizens should not allow be allowed to have their officials past, present, future and their family members and their business elites and their political elites and their military elites and the friends and families and associates of their oligarchs come and enjoy time in Spain, in Canada, in Sweden, in New Zealand, whatever. We need to make sure that this authority is widened. It already exists in U.S. law. We need to widen it in the next Appropriations Act. That's one thing that, you know, the Congress can do, the path of least resistance. And then you want to get other countries to emulate and amplify these visa bans. Just recently, you had the former Iranian health minister in Canada, Ghazi Zadeh Hashemi. It was the Iranian diaspora that raised the attention of this person being in Canada and got the Canadians to actually pull his visa. Right.
And by the way, I should mention Evan Gershkovich is the name of the uh, Wall Street Journal correspondent in, in Russia, just because these names should be used and we, we, should, we should mention. A lot of more things Congress could be doing. They're not potted plants. They could be issuing a joint resolution against oh, this, this sort of thing, not sitting back. They're the ones who are supposed to be informed and approve of a deal. And they're not. Anyhow, I want again, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. If there's anything you want to mention, something I didn't raise, let me give you a, a chance to do that. Is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? I, I, I love the list that Benham just gave about yeah. like what can be done, and I want to I want to um, uh, add some uh, um, uh, comments to it. Maybe um, it's very important that we don't just look at each country as if um, only the U.S. had a problem with hostage shaking, only Germany. If all of these countries are having the same problem, then all of them should work together. And what they're doing right now is treating these cases as consular cases, right. pushing it even in the uh, EU, pushing it to the uh, countries, which weakens the countries. They can be blackmailed. They can be uh, played out against each other by the hostage takers. And that's what they've been doing. Like the Swedish diplomat that was taken, he was um, taken pretty much because uh, of Hamid Nouri a mass murderer that was sentenced to life in prison in Sweden. They um, sentenced Ahmad Reza Jalali, another Swedish citizen, to death. They kidnapped and assassinated uh, Habib Chab, uh, another Swedish citizen. And when that didn't get Nuri out, then they took the um, European diplomat hostage. So that brings us to, to point two, which is... Um, the, the travel bans or the travel restrictions. I mean, we're talking about a diplomat right now. This is not victim blaming. He should, he still must be released. Like, this is not like saying like, well, you, we went there. You have to uh, stay there. But to show that even diplomats were not getting the information that they should not travel by two of his countrymen, two other Swedish citizens were in Iran held hostage at that time with death sentences. So what does that tell you? Either the, the travel restrictions were not there. The uh, uh, European diplomats were not informed about that, or if for some reason they thought they're, they're going to be safe. They still can do that, and that is a major problem. So these travel restrictions have to be all over the world. All of these countries have to do them. How fast these hostage cases are attended to is very important. As we said, we have people like Shab Dalili, who's seven years still waiting for a designation, while somebody was just added to this deal that was arrested a couple months ago, doesn't even have a verdict and is included in this prisoner swap deal. That does, that does not, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what are they basing it on? So there should be a time limit. Like, after one week, the State Department has to contact you. After two weeks, the media has to give you an outlet. Like, all of these things, like support for the families and not working against the families. That is very, very important. And when we're all working together, when you have the US, Canada, Australia and Europe working together, we have enough leverage. I mean, you have Europe, uh, Germany as the biggest trade partner over there. We have uh, America that has the frozen assets. We have uh, so many um, convicted terrorists all over Europe. We have leverage if you put that all together and act as one. So the Islamic regime cannot come and take any hostage from any country because then all of these countries are going to say, this week we're all sending back one of your di diplomats. This week we're going to uh, decrease the trade. This week we're going to do this and that. So together, so every single country that's involved is going to be protected. And then working on a, on a resolution on how to get everybody out, everybody, not again, cherry-picking hostage cases, leaving, leaving some behind for future deals, um, and holding these people accountable. Yes. That is, at the end, where we should go. And that brings us back to the revolution right now. This is the root 
of our problem, the Islamic regime and what it represents and how it came to power. And we must, we must listen or start listening to the people of Iran and the diaspora that is the voice of the people of Iran and represents them. We as When I say we, I mean the policymakers, I mean Congress, I mean our uh, governments have to start meeting these people and involving them in their policies. Otherwise, it and will take a long time. It will still get together. done. We all have to, yes, stop enriching and empowering this regime where every Friday night they chant death to America. How stupid that we don't get that. Shiway, final thoughts? Yeah, to start the final thought, I just want to say shame on the Biden administration. Because this is the same group of people, Tony Blinken, Rob Molly, Brett McGurk, Jake Sullivan, the same people who negotiated the 2015 nuclear deal and then negotiated the prisoner swap in which four Americans were released from Iran. I think it was the seven, certainly more than four Iranian prisoners either released or their charges dropped. And then $1.7 billion pallets of cash delivered to Iran. And then they left people behind as they did that deal back in 2016, right? And now, as we're speaking here, the same people who negotiated that horrible deal in 2015 and 2016 are repeating the same thing, but in much bigger scale. And I would just say, shame on them. And I also want to say, what kind of people are they getting out? They are not being transparent. They are not being accountable. It seems that they're getting well-off business elites or pro-engagement, right? And then leaving behind ordinary people like Shahab Dalili, like Jamshid Sharmat, right? So they may say, oh, they're not U.S. citizens, so this is not our business. But we have a law, a Levinson Act, that covers people like Shahab Dalili and Jamshid Sharmat. To be fair, maybe there is a gray area. Maybe the Department of State can argue they still don't qualify, right? But that's fine. Tell us. Come clean on that. Come to the public. Tell Congress why these people cannot be covered under this law. There's no conversation on that. Right. They're not being accountable. And the problem is the Biden administration did this horrible deal, in my opinion, purposefully in August. Recess. During the Congress recess, right? So members of Congress, senators are all back in their district yeah. and taking vacations. Yeah. So, but I would say this is also a failure from our elected officials. Yeah. Pretty much until yesterday. No senators, no members of Congress have said anything in public about the cases of hostage being left behind. But we do have one elected official, Senator Chris Murphy, from day one when the deal was done, has been very active on social media talking about why we have to do this deal. In my opinion, there's no excuse. This is a horrible failure on the side of Congress. Our elected official failed in this case to hold the Biden administration accountable. And to this day, by the way, no Biden officials, sitting officials, have been called to Congress for open hearing on the Iran policy, on the hostage situation. To this day, mm, mm. right? I think this is unexcusable failure on the Congress side. Ben, I'm going to give you the last word really quickly. You and I will be talking about this, writing about this, but uh, very final thoughts. For sure. There's not a lot of places in, in, in such real moral clarity both of your stories provided. Thank you for sharing them. But not a lot of places in the Middle East when you survey from Washington, uh, perhaps with the exception of Israel, uh, but Iran meets that exception also. Uh, we're doing the right thing, the morally right thing, is also the strategically sound thing. You know, not empowering hostage takers, not empowering terrorists is not just morally right, it's strategically sound. You know, for too long in DC, a lot of the conversations about human rights in Iran, about hostages in Iran, about 
what they unfortunately call in this field the soft issues, because if it doesn't go boom, you know, if it's not a missile, if it's not a drone, if it's not a nuclear weapon, it's going to be covered by different kind of folk in Washington, both bureaucratically in the government and in terms of the expert community outside. But the problem is the Islamic Republic does not disconnect the dots between those two, uh, but we do. We have to get American policymakers, American representative officials, American media, everything to see the connective tissue. Uh, that the state that represses its own population is the state that takes foreign citizens, dual nationals hostage, is the state that uses human beings as chips, quite literally, against other adversaries, is the state that has a long arm of terror across multiple continents. And we are lucky that doing the right thing is also the smart thing. Uh, and thus far, Shui, you know, the, 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 the kind of damnation you showed uh, to, uh, the, the, the kind of condemnation, I should say, uh, of the Biden administration, not learning from the, from the mistakes of the past only means one thing, uh, that we're going to go from, to borrow another Persian phrase, as chalebicha, from a ditch to a well. The issue is going to keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper uh, so long as we don't recognize this. Exactly. And I want to add this, which is super, super important. I was held as a hostage, U.S. hostage in Iran, in the Ebbing prison for 1,216 days. I was released through a prisoner swap for a Iranian prisoner who was due to be released for time served anyway. Ugh. Had he not been released <laughs> on that day, he would have been released in a week or two. There was no money changing hand. Same thing happened for Mr. Michael White about six, seven months after my release. Both cases during the Trump administration. This is a case, this is a situation that shows us, shows the American people that a release of American hostages can be achieved even in the toughest situations such as Iran without money changing hands. I think everyone needs to ask him or herself, if we can do that, why are we giving Iran $6 billion? I don't like to mention $6 billion. I would say it's much larger amount. Absolutely. Let's say, say tens of billions. If we can release people, release our citizens who are held hostage in Iran without money changing hands, why are we sending them these billions of dollars in ransom payment to just incentivize them to take more innocent foreigners hostage, which exactly is happening today? I think that we talked about what the Western countries should do, what democracies should do in relation to Iran's horrible behavior in this regard. But I would say from my own perspective, America is the most significant power that can impose cost and bring changes to Iran and broader in the region. When we refuse to act, we cannot expect other countries to act better. No. Again, shame on the Biden administration. There is a lot of work to do. The United States needs to do better and Congress needs to do its work. Shuea, we're glad that you survived your captivity and that you're thriving now. That's wonderful, Gazelle. Our doors are open to you, but I hope next time Jimmy Sharmad will come with you and we'll talk to him here. I hope that's the case, Venom. You and I will be talking about this. Glad to have you all. Thank you for being here. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. 
There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.